Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm speaking with Paul Van Rijk, who is the author of a new book, True to the Land, A History of Food in Australia. Paul is also a regular presenter at the Australian Symposium of Gastronomy that, as his book tells us, got underway in the early 1980s, shortly after Michael Simon's One Continuous Picnic, A History of Eating in Australia, was published in 1982, and that was, until now, in many ways, the most recent wide-ranging food history of Australia. And Paul's book pays tribute to it and to the work of other Australian food historians, writers and chefs, as well as to the foodways and knowledges of First Australians. Welcome, Paul. It is such a pleasure to be speaking with you. And a pleasure myself as well. Thanks. True to the Land, it's a really beautiful title and speaks to futures as well as to the history of our foodways and how they may or may not be in sync with the nature of our lands, waters, environments and people. Paul, can you lead us in by telling us what motivated you to write the book and something about your own personal journey in the fabulous field of food and to research and publish this great history? Sure. Um, look, I've been writing snippets of food history, Australian food history for quite a long time um, for the Australian Symposium of Gastronomy. I've also had some papers published in um, Petit Propos Culinaire, which is a small academic journal from the UK and also Gastronomica from California. So I've had an interest in food history writing. Um, I also write, uh, you know, occasional articles just about a particular food or whatever, but I, I try to put that in a historic context. I guess um, why that is, is because to me, looking at the history of food in a country or in wherever I do it, uh, or whatever uh, ingredient it is, um, allows me also to explore the sort of um, political and social and cultural milieus in which those things happen, uh, which I think are very important for us understanding our food, uh, understanding why we eat what we eat now, what happened in the past that led to this, and also, I guess, looking at what that means for the future, because what we eat now obviously has implications for the future. I wrote some articles on treat food in Australia, Sri Lanka, and Papua New Guinea for the same publishers of this book, Reaction Publishing. When they came to want someone to write a food history of Australia, they had first approached another uh, academic, Jean Deru, but she was busy, overwhelmed by her own work, and really um, very nicely, she's a close friend of mine, said, look, Paul's a better person to ask. The minute it hit me, I thought, this is a great opportunity for me to pull together a lot of my thoughts about food history in Australia, to explore some of those major kind of political socio-economic themes that are important to me, not just in food history, but as part of my general social justice activism, yeah? So uh, I put a proposal to reaction, and I was a bit concerned that they might talk a little bit at how overtly I wanted to discuss those kinds of aspects, the laws that impact on food, particularly the kinds of immigration laws and other racist kind of laws, and particularly the stuff around First Nations as well, but they were very happy um, that that was the direction I wanted to take. Yeah, they said, go ahead. <laughs> um, Fantastic. Yeah. I didn't realize, I don't think, how big the task potentially was. Um, they gave me uh, two years over which to produce the book for them, giving them the uh, you know final copy. And I totally uh, hadn't recognized that I would also be working pretty much four days a week, full time um, during that period. It took me about 18 months of research um, and then another good seven months worth of actually just taking time off work 
to write it, yeah. Well, you've achieved an amazing, that's, that's a pretty good role for such a significant book and depth of research that's in it. Just on the research question, I mean, the other barrier I guess I had was there was no, I didn't get an advance. I, I was only going to be paid some amount once I handed the book up. So I didn't have a budget for, you know, doing trips around places or paying for, you know, articles and stuff. And I had to do what I could online, go to the State Library in New South Wales, which is a, a great place use Trove, the uh, Library of Australia's online source, uh, and also lean very heavily on some academic friends of mine and other food writing friends to direct me in the direction of where I might go. Well, you've done an amazing job. And as you say, it's it's all about food, but it's about a whole lot more, isn't it? It's a, a great introduction, really, to anyone about Australian colonial and social history, generally, in many ways, I found. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as you say, the book is published by Reaction Books, which are out of London, and it's a part of their new series, Food and Nations. So it's international in reach. So that's, that's really exciting. Yes. Can you tell us some who or what readers in particular you had most in mind when you were writing it? That series itself, Food and Nations, is really targeted at academics courses in food studies, which have become quite common these days, you know, in the last 20 years, certainly there's been a blossoming of that. At the same time, a lot of those courses are undergraduate courses or done through technical colleges or food-specific colleges, industry colleges. So it's not intended to be a very academically rigorous book. It is meant to have academic rigor, but it's meant to be targeted more towards the person, the, the student who can look for a quick overview of history, find some clues as to where some other research might go. But I also knew that I was writing this, as you mentioned, as the second whole of Australia in history review post Michael Simon's book in the 1980s. And so I was aware that I had to try and bring that story forward, pick up on some of the areas where Michael didn't have a lot of resources at the time, like the First Nations food. And I also had to situate it within the context of some of the more recent Australian histories that had been written. Jackie Newling's around colonial history, John Newton's around First Nations history. And there has been recent academic writing about Australian history as well. So I needed to be true also to Australian history writers generally, but food writers um, who would still like to chase up information that I put forward. Yeah, wonderful. As you say in the introduction, I'll just quote this because it is a, a lovely, succinct statement of what food ways are. A history of food and drink in any country is more than a summary of what food was eaten, by whom and when. It encompasses the food, how it is collected or produced, how it is distributed and how it is consumed. These food activities are influenced by geography, economic policies, cultural practices, social relationships, global relationships and technologies. Foodways change over time as shifts happen in the weight of influence each of these factors has. It's, it's a great summary in a nutshell of everything you canvas. <laughs> Paul, can you paint a quick picture, I suppose, um, of, of how you went about organising the book and then perhaps talk about some of the key themes that you elucidate or that show up in new lights across the book, across the chronology. Um, and, and I know you've got some very particular themes that you've really focused in on. Sure. So, I mean, it is a history, so I did have to look at it basically chronologically. Um, so each chapter takes a particular time span, but I was aware of trying to link those time spans to significant historic events that also meant something for those kind of foodway practices, yeah? the long history that we know of indigenous peoples arriving, then the kind of colonial period, broken up into two because there was a distinct stage pre-federation and post-federation. Then looking at what happens between during the First World War and then it was a bit less easy to kind of find key markers post the Second World War. But again, I, I went back to the themes. I mean, I, I, I didn't stick rigidly the chronology at times. Sometimes what I wanted to say just needed to go backwards and forwards so much that I needed to put it further or elsewhere in the text and refer back. When I was writing it, I was keeping in mind what a historian had said at a seminar I went to on history writing, where he said that when you come to do this, three questions you need to think, what do I need to say? How do I know it's true? Sorry, four things. Why is it important to say? And is this the right place to say it? Mm -hmm. Continually, when I had a piece of historic information to put in, I had to think about, particularly the last one, is this a good place to, to put it? So while it takes a broad sweep of history, 
um, every now and then it kind of moves backwards and forwards. With that chronological structure, yes, there were the themes I wanted to pursue, having said at the introduction, hey, food ways are complex. I certainly wanted to keep a theme going through it of not so much food of the, of the First Nations people, although that's the way that first chapter is framed, which is the early information, the information we have about the 65,000 years of Aboriginal food waste prior to colonization. But there hasn't been a lot that looked at, well, what happened to Aboriginal food post that? And some significant things happened in terms of what impacted on their diet, their, ex their access to resources, and what the implications of that were. So I wanted to pursue looking at what happens to Aboriginal and Indigenous food waste generally up to today. I certainly, being a migrant to Australia myself since 1962, and knowing the changes that happened for me and my family in terms of our food and our capacity to finding our food and eating our food, but also our experience of growing awareness of other foods. And then as I grew, my widening interest in that as a university student and then as a person who had some money to actually spend on food. <laughs> and again, I was aware there that you know, my family came during the period of the white Australia policy. And I, I had to recognize what that had meant for my family, what it meant for therefore for other migrants during that period. And then the other kind of historic points at which we had large numbers of migrants come under specific policies that again changed the foodscape. And so I talk about what happened post-war, I talk about what happened post the Vietnam War, and then I look at what happens as the white Australia policy basically breaks down um, and we get a range, particularly of refugee populations coming in. I was also really aware that um, currently a lot of food focus is in media and restaurant guides and so on is on men, celebrity chefs, male chefs. To me, that really has unbalanced our understanding of food history in Australia. Yes, even back in the colonial period, you know, you had a couple of big name chefs at big name gentlemen's hotels, but the majority of food practice in terms of who was doing the cooking, who was doing the food writing, was women. Primarily women in the domestic sphere, home cooks, but also those who then wrote cookbooks for the home economics classes. And they were certainly the ones who started, uh, you know, some of the outlets for food, but it would, they were also significant in from the 80s, that period we have now where foodie, uh, food chefing and high-end restaurants becomes important. And we know that people like the Stephanie Alexanders of the world, the Carly Kongs of the world, Christine Manfields, you know, often get written out of that kind of consciousness of... Even them, yeah. Even then, you know, the food space. Yeah, and I, Women's Day and Women's Weekly feature feature large, and, 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 and rightly so. Oh, look, I looked through, I, I went through every single copy of Women's Weekly online through Trove, the, that... Uh, online journal. And it was just a gold mine in terms of reading women's, the domestic practice as well. And I, I touch on that and I'd love to do more about how the domestic practice is reflected in those recipes, but really thinking through how women were experimenting, particularly with non-traditional, non-meat uh, and three veg. They were looking at what they could do with um, Raj-influenced curries in Australia. They started looking at Chinese food. You know, the CWA, yes, it was very big on cakes and scones. But, you know, people, country, country women in particular, had to look, for example, in the early period at how to adapt some of the native uh, foods, uh, parrots. <laughs> I love the recipe um, for, jugged, for jugged wallaby. Jugged wallaby. Traditional recipe for jugged hair. Hey, well, eventually we did have jug rabbit as well, but hey, there are these roos running around. We've got to work out a way of preserving this food, and that's what you do with those. Yeah? The other theme, Anthea, that runs through was brought on by generally recognizing that climate particularly affects food production in Australia. But I wrote the book during those dreadful years of the 2018, 2019, going into 2020 drought, and it just started to be so clear that the what we had was a agricultural sector that had ignored warnings that were there, not just from Aboriginal people 65,000 years, but in the early years of the first settlement. 
that we were subject to a, a climate cycle of drought and flood. And in between, you might be lucky to get a few good years there. Yeah. And the history of weight in your book, I found really interesting. Um, Indeed, in that in that way. It's actually never been as abundant or as easy as perhaps we think. No. In, in, you know, the, the first colony comes, tries to grow wheat um, at Sydney Cove, hmm. finds that the land is, is rubbish. One of the things I didn't kind of focus on in the book was Cook basically had not seen anything that could have justified him saying Botany Bay is a great place to go and set up a colony. <laughs> oh, and by the way, the entire East Coast of Australia is terrific. Mm. It was a, a lie, not just a lie that nobody lived there, but it was a lie that the land was just, just so fabulous. Now, that's a lovely overview. <laughs> it's such, so much to explore. But, yeah, the, the sort of mismatch of crops and how we've treated the land and are they? how, how are we going with adapting and varying things to head that way. Um, some of the standout themes to me that really run throughout the book and that I, that resonate with a lot of what you've just said, really strikingly to me, I just sort of almost forgotten the incredibly strong colonial ties and the demand for meat and how the pastoral industry shaped this country and in many ways still does. Um, coffee, our absolute love of it and obsession with it. Yeah. The temperance movement and how where that came from, gold rushes and more, and how it sort of had yes. perverse and pyrrhic victories in terms of our drinking cultures and uh, yes. masculinity versions that went with it, and its relationship to the coffee palaces, um, yes. the impacts of war, refugees, um, technologies for preservation, freight and refrigeration, yes. and just when they came and how that impacted on our export industries. Agricultural labour shortages, a theme from the very, very beginning, from the convicts to the gold rushes to indentured labour and Aboriginal people on stations. And and so many of our iconic uh, recipes and brands that are really so long-standing and, and still going. <laughs> okay, so the first chapter is really, given that you've got students and other uh, like-minded folk in mind, is something of a geography lesson that really sets the scene about the Australian continent the vast and high landscape, its soils, its biodiversity and uh, related characteristics. So it's a really punchy, succinct read. But, and then Chapter 2 shares your research and insights about the rich, many food ways of Australia's first peoples, dreaming taught spiritually why the world must be maintained yep. and the land taught how. Um, and you describe layered traditional diverse food systems and diets across different landscapes, obviously a huge continent, with headings or sections grouped under fire and water, food from plants, food from rivers, lakes and seas, food from land animals and insects. Yes. And you talk about Indigenous people's innovations for cooking, preservation and storage fit for place but also for living on the move and there's a lot to unpack there. It's so fascinating. And you tell of the particular and slightly different food ways of the Torres Straits people um, who share connections with PNG and uh, long-standing gardening or uh, small agricultural practices. Paul, would you like to share perhaps just some particular highlights from your research for this chapter that that perhaps really surprised you or, or particularly spoke to you? Obviously, you know, there's an enormous amount there. but Sure. We don't need to rehearse the, the damage and PASCO material about resource management, but it became, I guess, more striking to me um, reading about practices like, uh, you know, women being seen uh, to, uh, when digging yams, to leave part of the yam in the ground so that it would replenish. You know, this is an understanding about the way plants grow that is more sophisticated, and I'm, I'm turning on dangerous ground using those words, but more sophisticated than the than the vision that oh it's a hunter gatherer who comes along just pulls out a, a a root and just hopes for the best. We know of peoples in parts of the country declaring parts of their their land, the the country that they live in, no go areas for uh, some years to allow the animals and plants to regenerate. So they basically create sanctuaries. You know, again, this this is quite advanced thinking through. What's happening here? Again, it's not just coming across something, yeah? And then we do have the examples of the, the fish management practices. So famously, the Brewarina fish traps, which are the rocks that are placed in the, the, the river at Brewarina and basically acted as dams to control how fish going upstream could be then harvested. And who had access to them, like the sharing of those resources. Absolutely, absolutely. And then there's the budge beam eel traps down in Toria, 
a similar idea. They kind of channel the, the eels into pools where the eels get fatter before they're killed. And there's some evidence to say that they actually smoke the eels in hollow logs, which makes them, makes them preserved. And of course, the biggest, well, not the biggest, I guess the one that we know most about right now or are most interested in right now is fire stick land management. The regular technically advanced burning of particular parts of the country at particular times of the year to have particular responses, both for the animals and the native plant life here. And we now, of course, are rebringing that and using Aboriginal knowledge in fire stick burning as a bushfire control. But they created the kind of landscape that we see, you know, the big Western plains and so on, are very much a creation of that kind of practice. That was, I think, a significant thing for me. The other thing that I think we forget is you alluded to it. We talk these days about how, how we bemoan the fact that Australia has no regional cuisines. Well, it has a couple in particular areas, but Aboriginal food was regional. People had a part of the land that was their country. They had their totemic plants within that. That's what they ate. We forget in some senses that some of the stuff that we think of as bush food, bush tucker now, most Aboriginal people did not eat. Mountain pepper berries, hey, Tasmania, yeah. New South Wales, not so much. And then the seasonality as well. So again, we know that um, people moved around country, but that's also partly, let's go where the produce is good. This is not in the book because I heard about this later. Up on the North Coast, the Banjalang people, when they observe ants walking in a straight line, they know that it's mullet season. And sure enough, they go out and the mullet are running. That kind of link between observing natural phenomena and linking that to what that means in terms of food resources, fabulous stuff. There was also the, the, the trade routes, for example, also the Banya nut ceremonies up in North Queensland, where hundreds of people come for a corroboree. And then the Banya nuts are traded all through Australia, the Bogong nuts across country. And the song lines across country associated with both of those foods. Absolutely. You know, these are, actually, when we talk about Bogong nuts, let's also remember that we're now looking these days at thinking, oh, insects would be a great source of protein, given that we ought to get off meat. Well, gee, you know. <laughs> Aboriginal people ate bogong moths and witchery grubs and other highly nutritious insects for a very long time. And very low fat. And very low fat, indeed. Okay. Chapter three, Settlers to Squatters, tells yeah. of the incredible precariousness of the First Fleet and their near starvation and the tale of expansion into the land of land grabs and further dispossession of First Peoples. I was really struck by the story of how the First Fleet collected plants and fruit trees and precious stock en route to arrive and somehow feed themselves, which they didn't do, you know, which they struggled with, but they somehow managed to arrive without as much as a plough. <laughs> yeah, I know. Look, when I was reading that, I thought, what, what is this? So you've got most people, I think there was only like three people out of the entire first fleet who had any knowledge of agriculture, right? Why do you send all these people to try and survive for two years on what they get to what you give them to grow, not doing what the land is, without the wherewithal to actually do something. The other thing I pointed there is that they came after the agrarian revolution in, in Britain. And, and, you know, they had done things like Jethro Tull invents the, the seed spreader. They don't bring that either. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. The rotation farming. So the full crop rotation, which means that each year you do some other crop in that thing to replenish the soil. One person, as my book says, uh, you know, Dodd, who becomes the, like the first kind of garden for the, the, the farm uh, that gets set up, actually did know about some of these things hmm. um, and hmm. did start, you know, using them. But basically all the way through tension, the others are saying things like, oh, you know, they managed to hoe two acres of land today. And you think, good grief, you're using a hand hole on pretty unforgiving soil. And rotation farming. They, I was fascinated to read in your book, you know, the rotation farming was already well as in Britain. Tell us, um, tell us, Paul, just what, what did the first fleeters eat for the first year and just how desperate did they become for food? So, look, they had brought all the kind of things, I guess, that were part of their traditional diets. So they had brought salt meat, beef and, and pork. That was part of what happens on ship rations anyway. 
but they also recognize that they probably need that until the five cows that they brought and, and a bull started producing. So meat, meat, and more meat. We've got to remember that back in Britain as well, meat was a high, a high status food. Not many people ate meat unless they could kill their own. Yeah. But we know that meat was becoming more popular, so they bring meat. They bring uh, poultry of all, all sorts of kinds, again, both to lay eggs and for meat. And they do bring seed grains for wheat, barley, corn, and so on. And yes, the wheat failed to thrive because of the poor soil. But as they moved then further up into the Hawkesbury and the Parramatta, the soil is richer. And so the wheat starts to grow. They brought maize. So one of the things that I found interesting was I had always thought, oh, they were always eating wheat. But no, they were actually growing maize for corn. And cornmeal was very much part of the produce at the time. They did bring, as, as you said, some plants um, like the fruit orchards. And they would, of course, have taken some time to mature. Uh, they did bring some already growing plants, but they would have taken some time, which is why they sometimes supplemented what they were eating with what they could uh, hunt or fish or gather. They observed what Aboriginal people, the Gadigal people were eating. Oh, and by the way, they failed to acknowledge what they, the ship's surgeon talks about how fabulous these He's found some herbal things to use and he failed to acknowledge that he's actually seen Aboriginal people doing this. Thanks very much. And then fish. I mean, one of the things we don't think about when we talk about bush tucker and bush food is, and how nobody ever ate it once the settlers came, is they all ate fish. They ate fish in the rivers. They ate crustaceans. They ate oysters. And we've never really recognized that fish was a substantial part of an Aboriginal people's diet on the coast and the rivers. They brought with them the technology, unfortunately, of good fish, metal fish hooks and nets. And they started hauling way more food out of the, the harbor than the Aboriginal people could. And that caused a lot of tension. There's a really great sense of the history of Sydney and, and, and of places. I mean, I really loved reading about the Hawkesbury, the Haymarket food markets that continue as Paddy's markets today and all those sorts of things. But there was one lovely um, anecdote that I just thought really brought just how precarious things were was you, you tell the story about um, bring your own bread. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that you might be invited to dinner where you might have all sorts of lavish things, but it wasn't about bringing your own bottle. It was about bringing your own bread. I thought that was great. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Tench, Tench talks about that and others do as well. And you can just see yourself going to, you know, dinner at governor house, reaching hand in your pocket and bringing out your bread. Uh, everything else is kind of out there, but not the bread. And allied to that, of course, is um, that story that um, the first person in Australia charged with food adulteration was a woman who took wheat to be ground at the, the mill that was set up so she could bake it into bread and she had mixed stones with it and she was <laughs> fined for adulterating flour. I mean, good grief. That was how desperate they were getting. They had to eke out what they had. Mm. And and that chapter is also very much the story about the power of MacArthur and the rum corpse and the, the bigger story of um, land grants and privileges granted to a few. And that's a key theme that runs through the book in many ways. Uh, yes. Large landholders versus the small, whether they'd be the small selectors after the gold rushes and, of course, the iterations of soldier settlement blocks. And you also tell the story of the impacts and the hardships created by colonial imported species, um, many familiar to many people, but you know, just, just worth reiterating just the incredible impacts of the introduction of rabbits, foxes and prickly pear. And prickly pear, yeah. Rabbits and foxes are brought in for hunting by the acclimatisation societies. And this is part of this whole attempt to reshape Britain in this absolutely alien to them, environment. It's colonizing the land as much as you're colonizing the peoples, yeah? And that is where part of the truth of the land discussion comes in. They were false to the land. They came with a false sense of what the land was and they started to impose on the land a falseness about what the land was about, a false understanding of it and a deliberate continuing false understanding. Yeah, and no perception of the damage that was... No, 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 no. You know, yeah, they start clear-filling and don't think through what does that mean. Where we go with that, of course, the, the, the big damage was to Aboriginal foodways. As they start encroaching further into the land and killing... Their rifles kill more kangaroos, for example, than, than uh, spears can, yeah? Um, and as they clear the land, less fodder for the marsupials, the Aboriginal people get 
push further and further into other people's, other nations' countries, a lot of negotiating to do there about, hey, we're coming to eat your resources. Fences get built up along waterways as land gets enclosed. That's the other thing that's happening, of course, at this stage. The British system has just gone through the Enclosure Acts where land is now becoming privatized. And so Aboriginal people can't use their usual song lines and tracks to get to fresh water or indeed their, uh, you know, their, their riverine crops. So naturally, they do start raiding, you know, land of the settlers, um, and that's when the frontier wars start. There are much as much about land and food as anything else. Yeah, and and of course, uh, frontier wars, squatters, and the desecration of water, waterways, and sacred fire. Absolutely, as you say, the book is organised chronologically, and each chapter is interlaced with social and political history of the times, with themes resonating across all of the chapters. Chapter four, golden soil and wealth for toil, tells the story of the massive impacts and huge immigration of the gold rushes and, stand out to me, of refrigeration technologies that enabled massive agricultural exports, particularly of meat, <laughs> much, much valued. The gold yeah. rush also saw indentured labourers arrive yep. from China for the yep. first time as agricultural labourers rushed to the gold fields. And, of course, a rural agricultural labouring workforce has been a big issue from the very, very beginning and yes. is still now, as we know, during COVID. And, and in many ways, the gold rush seeded the white Australia policy, didn't it? Would you like to comment on any other key impacts on our foodways from the gold rush period? Sure, sure. Look, I, I think it was because after the gold rush, the, the country was, for a period anyway, flush with money. It had a lot of land, land speculation, a lot of property speculation. So you had... And, and a huge growth in population. Like Exactly. And of course, it's still mainly in the cities, yeah, because that's still where the commerce is conducted. The gold fields are great for, you know, hard scrabbling. Um, but living on gold fields was, was was not an easy life. Lack of fresh fresh uh, meat, uh, fruit and vegetables. The Chinese market gardeners help out there. That's part of it. And that's when you start seeing, I guess, the development of landed squatocracy, who then again come to the city wanting to have good food, stay in good hotels. The gentleman club starts. So you do have that arist that uh, squatocracy, which then starts to make a real stratification again between the rural poor and the squatters. You know? So you do get the introduction, as you were doing in Britain at the time as well, of French-influenced cuisine, the, the whole cuisine, the French chefs who had started working with the gentleman clubs in uh, Europe, some of them start working in the, the major cities as well. It's pretty limited who gets access to it. Coffee starts to be available. Coffee failed again early, but by then you've got coffee at a, at a reasonable price. So you get coffee shops. There were kind of coffee rooms. There weren't really cafes. And as you said in your introduction, you get the fabulous coffee palaces. I, I love this part of Australian history. Coffee palaces were kicked off by the temperance societies in the, 18, in the late 18th in the hundreds started in england where temperate societies they wanted to set up an alternative for working class young young work, workers to pubs as because they thought they go there they get drunk they fight they beat their wives up and they're late for work the next day we'll set up places where they can come and they can talk they can read newspapers we can have socialize and give them education sessions and by the way we might convert them to being uh, teetotalers that worked for a while they'd set up some coffee rooms like that in Australia as well. The next phase, though, was speculators with money thinking this is a great alternative to pubs, not just for working class, but for these middle class commercial travelers and businessmen who may also want an alternative to meeting in a pub with all the noise and the fights and whatever that and crap food. Why don't we start setting up ritzy places where the food is good, they can have reading rooms, cigar rooms. Women might be allowed if accompanied by men or in a separate part where it's discreet. They're the coffee palaces and they start being built, particularly around the time when Sydney and Melbourne start to host the great industrial exhibition. So these are showcases for the capital cities. So you need to showcase that you've got these hotels that are good places to bring families to. They're beautiful. It's a beautiful theme that runs through the book. They're wonderful. You spoke about the enclosures and that's such an interesting parallel agricultural history in Britain that impacted so directly on convicts and industrialisation and, and obviously then here. And you also talk about, you know, as part of that labour theme, you know, indentured labour, 
stolen generations, young Aboriginal women and children, you know, in domestic labour, a hidden part of our uh, white food waste. And you also talk about, you know, obviously flour, sugar and tea almost being the pretty basic staples on the goldfields and elsewhere. But um, it was really fascinating to me to learn about Keane's curry, you know, that that, that was there from the 1850s and it's still much loved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Tasmanian invention. So the British East India Company, when it was in India, you know, the members of that company enjoyed eating Indian food. They got used to eating curries and hot spicy foods. When they go back to England, they can't find the ingredients really to make it, particularly the kinds of sweetenings and souring flavors, you know. So they create this British Raj curry, which includes things like raisins and apples and all kinds of strange things. But they also start making curry powders, which again are do use ground spices, but heavily based, heavily use turmeric. That comes across to Australia with the first fleet and then becomes, again, part of the staple of what would you would do to kind of spice up your food. You'd have a curry. I think there was some curry served at Government House in Sydney during some of these early banquets. But they're very denatured curries. Keens, the, the company in Tasmania, takes this on and, yes, creates this curry powder, which, by the way, I still use. I just used them the other day to make some uh, Australian curried egg <laughs> or d'oeuvres because you can't do anything else without the curry powder Keens. And that's lasted to this day. And Keens basically became a part of every spice cabinet because, again, you couldn't get the raw ingredients or the individual spice ingredients until well into the 1950s and 60s, you know. You still have to use curry powder. And, and that's why we kind of started having very yellow curries for a very long time. So there was another thing I meant to mention there in terms of those parallel foodways and the huge impact on our uh, history and food traditions was the young Irish women who were recruited and imported um, in the mid-1850s at the time of the Great Famine in Ireland that absolutely coincided with the gold rushes. I mean, it's just, just extraordinary. The famine, yeah, yeah. I found the chapters on Federation, Chapter 5 and Chapter 6 Between the Wars, super fascinating particular detail about just the depth of the colonial connection with meat and wheat exports for the war effort. Um, we're literally exporting our, our young folk, but also feeding the war effort and, and that led to consequent rationing, high food prices and shortages and even riots uh, here in Australia during World War One. And at around the time of Federation and leading into it, in some ways, the Federation drought played a key role there in making the states pull together. And then wheat production fell dramatically yep. before World War One, And then during World War Two, it dropped to, where there was another big drought, as you said at the beginning, drought yep. frame all these events. Um, and scarcity was a real issue in World War Two, with lack of wheat um, at levels below even 1914. Yes. You talk about the canning stock route, and that's just a huge story of dispossession and, and um, all for, I think, about 13 herds of cattle over the... 40 or 50 years of that stock rate, just a whole amazing story. And slavery, you know, that it was clearly slavery, people being chained and manacled at night. Yep, and the dispossession of West, of much of Western Australia. And then there's also lots of stories and anecdotes about some of our much-loved foods. I particularly like the story about Lamington and where they came from. And, and Vegemite, would you like to just tell us a little bit about those two icons? <laughs> the Lamington. The, the origin story is that it was a, a Frenchman uh, called Armand Galland, who was chef to Lord Lamington, who was the governor of Queensland from 1895 to 1901. And we know it's basically, a, you know, the sponge cube wrapped in chocolate and then with um, grated coconut around it. Basically, I think in a sense, I, I, I had this vision of the French chef going, Lord, not another sponge cake for his excellency. I can't stand it. What can I do with this? Ah, chocolate sauce. Why don't I do that? And oh, by the way, I might make it lead to look a bit pretty. Let's put some coconut over it. And it becomes, of course, a, a standard um, which goes through variations throughout uh, the Australian cake history. Um, I've seen some very strange lamingtons these days. It's very overly large lamingtons, which I would not have thought were um, lamingtons at all. But nonetheless, there we go. Oh, that's funny. And Vegemite's a really interesting story about food processing, in a sense, making use of food waste and it became a pretty nutritional key state. I mean, obviously it's a favourite, but really important during the Depression and other times. Yeah, because it does have that that yeastiness to it. It does have those kind of cereal products to it. Highly salted, of course, which is one of the big problems with it, that it just makes you crave 
water. But it's interesting, isn't it? These days when we are starting again to look at using yeast fermentation in the lab to create meats, here we have Vegemite, uh, which was a vegetable product around that. Britain, of course, did also try to have Marmite, which is a, a, based on a, a meat extract, but uh, Vegemite retains uh, remains our contribution, I guess, to that kind of early use of fermentation practices to create food. Interesting. And between the wars was also the time of uh, the temperance movement really hitting their stride and the instigation of the six six o'clock swill, you know, the lockout from pubs after six o'clock, which um, interestingly elsewhere in your book, you say it didn't reduce beer consumption, anything but really, and it probably inculcated some of our intensified binge drinking tradition. Indeed. And look, we, we know that that's true wherever restrictive practices are placed that really mean people are going to, uh, what is it called, they load up <laughs> before they, they load up again at home. I think teenagers call it praise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another lovely part in, the, in, the, in those chapters, which just, you know, leading into um, after the walls. But you talk, there's a lovely section where you talk about let's go to the Greeks. And it's all about the beautiful Greek cafes yes. across most country towns and in cities between the walls. T- tell me about that. Yeah, so look in the... The Greeks who set up these cafes came to Australia post-war, where there was a... Uh, a Post-World War One. Post-World War One, There was the Greco-Turkish War, and Australia agreed to take Greek migrants. Bit of a step away from the immigration policy that existed. But nonetheless, they came. And like others before them, they, they set up their market gardens and so on. But some of them were actually migrants from the US. And they brought to Australia this notion of these cafes where they could feed not themselves or their their community, but they could create a place where others of the the local people could come and eat. But they also brought with them, because this was the Art Deco period, the notion of these wonderful Art Deco roofs and the mouldings and the signage and the booths that had a had, you know, little jukebox in where you could go and sit. And the little glass, the little glass circles and the... The glass circles, all of that. So the Art Deco decorations. And, and they were the first who also brought in soda fountains. Again, an American idea. So, you know, again, a place where family could go to eat. Alternatives to pubs start to become really necessary, yeah, um, because otherwise, yeah, where do you take your family? So, oh, but, well, by the way, just a very interesting sideline. I've been doing some looking at Chinese restaurants in the uh, 50s and 60s, and a number of people who've said to me their first outing was that the Chinese restaurant was the only place in country towns they could go and have a family meal because the pubs you could not go to. That's a story from my experience, and we all had a beautiful Greek white rose cafe. <laughs> the other thing that Greeks did, which is also part of the forgotten history, is run the oyster bars, which literally were places to go and eat oysters while standing at a bar counter. Yeah, wonderful idea, and the, the oyster bar that opened down in Circular Quay, which is long lamented now, was just an example of that coming back into fashion. Beautiful. Moving on to sort of a, a brighter time, really. Things open up and get a little less meaty in Chapter 7. Uh, Boundless plans to share 1946 to 65 with many new food ways and possibilities all around the story of new migrants, their diverse cultures and fabulous food traditions and ingredients that they introduced. <laughs> um there's so many highlights from this time, and it's a really, really lovely chapter. Yes, what, yeah. what strikes or resonates most with you from this time? Two things, I guess. One thing which I kind of knew about, as, as, a, as a, a student at the university, I got introduced to the Gelato Bar, Viennese-style cafe on Bondi Beach, uh, opened by the Berger family. Jewish refugees from Middle Europe um, are brought to Australia under... Um, the immigration, uh, labor immigration minister at that stage, Arthur Caldwell, because there was a population crisis post-war in Australia in two ways. One, the birth fertility, the fertility rate had fallen, and also we needed labor force for the rapid industrialization. So he goes to Europe, says, hey, here's a population that needs some place to stay. What a difference around refugee policy to what we currently have. Eh? We're welcoming you because we appreciate your contribution. Of course, when they come, particularly the middle... This was the time of referring to migrants as the new Australians. Is that right? Indeed. That's when it starts being new Australian. Yeah. But what happens with these people is they, they this group of, of middle European Jewish refugees is they bring that whole 
middle European culture, which is so different in the way it deals with the art of food. You know, what a cafe is about, therefore conversing, they're not therefore bolting down some food or walking away with something in your hand. They're high cultural spots. And that's what starts to shift. And then they also bring in that wonderful range of middle European smorgasbord, the preserves, the the salamis, the you know the cabanossis, the the pickles, the different types of breads. Good heavens! You mean we don't only have white bread? No, there's this brown stuff that's really rich. I, I just love this section, and you talk, you know, you quote uh, Stephanie Alexander and her, her telling anecdotes about going to Pellegrino's Espresso Bar in Melbourne and eating with lots of migrants and. Um, just our overall growing love affair with cakes and coffee and and doing it really well and uh, and and Beppies in Sydney and you also talk about it as a time you know it really was this quite opening up uh, celebratory time often obviously for many people after much grief and suffering in Europe and during the wars but so so a sense of everyone looking forward and and sharing in different ways. and it was a time of growing fascination about and for eating continental at home. It's a lovely theme that I really loved. And you refer to Margaret Fulton as the authority to whom Australian home cooks tuned in, you know, to whom Australian home cooks turned in both the 1950s and the 60s. Indeed. She worked with uh, Woman's Day. Her first cookbook came out in 1968 and then she went on to publish many, but she was really active really early helping popularise continental food, but also Asian foods. And then she went on to support other amazing um, protégés at Women's Day and elsewhere. And I know that Charmaine Solomon is referred to in your book quite a lot, her wonderful, The Complete Asian Cookbook, the features in the next chapter. Tell tell me the story of Margaret Fulton, the many levels in which she really helped or contributed to that whole women's culture of food that you spoke about earlier in our chat. I think what's fascinating about Margaret Fulton was... A young girl, you know, in the 50s there, decides to make her own way in, in the business world. Starts off, um, if I recall rightly, um, the dressmaking decides that's not for her. Um, does some courses in cooking, finds that it's something she can do really well. Gets a job again. Gee, a female journalist, you know. Yes, yes, relegated to the food pages, but nonetheless, nonetheless, she starts to write recipes that people respond to. She's got a really good sense of what a home cook needs to have, understands recipe writing simply, creates recipes that people can recreate in the home from ingredients that are not uncommon. She's not averse to sending people to the local supermarket to buy some of the new products that are coming to the market, you know, the the packets and so on, yeah? She attracts the attention of British publishers who are looking for uh, local talent to uh, write cookbooks that have a wider distribution or can be pushed through the newly developing British publishing arms in Australia. And it's asked to start writing her major cookbooks. And that cookbook that she she wrote, the, the, the first cookbook, Margaret Fulton cookbook, goes through the roof. Biggest, biggest seller of that, pub, that publishing house's Books and remains that way. And it's it's that kind of breakthrough moment where you've got modern women who have these new appliances. <laughs> I was going to say, she's also very much a part of that uh, The Perfect Housewife appliance-driven great good hostess story. Totally. And, and producers, makers of appliances think, here's a woman who's getting a lot of publicity. Let's get her to write a book about our appliances. Let's get her to do demos using us. You know, electricity company gas company let's get margaret to do some demos because she's and let's face it she does not look like an agenda lawsuit she looks like somebody who's at home cooking you know she's not embarrassed about that she starts doing tv you know she starts making all those kinds of inroads into male dominated spheres yeah but she also then picking up on working women who are now starting to look for dishes that they can create in shorter space of time and that's why the convenience food start being used and Fulton's very much about that, you know. She never loses the kind of cake side of stuff, but she says, hey, there's more you can do. Yeah, and she, she even went to Hong Kong and was to, to, to learn about Chinese ingredients. In the day, it was pretty groovy. Absolutely. She gets sent to Hong Kong uh, by the magazine she was working with at that stage because there was starting to be an interest in Asian food. 
Now, this is in the early 60s. First book in, Austra- in English about Chinese food in Australia was actually produced in 1948 by a guy called Roy Gichon. But by the, the time Margaret starts to be sent overseas, you've got, we're starting to go overseas, particularly into uh, Southeast Asia. Hippies are walking up and down the hippie trail and thinking, hey, this is great food. Where do I find it when I come back? So you've got the beginnings, transformation period. The transformation. Let's go on to chapter chapter eight, because this is the great transformations, as you say, of people being able to travel. Yep. We've got this amazing multicultural population and incredible traditions and new things happening. Um, and, and then really once Australians could travel as well, much more cheaply and, and abundantly. Exactly. Then they brought back a lot of all this amazing sensibility as well. In, in, in Chapter 8, Transformations, 1966 to 79, you describe the winding back of the White Australia policy by the Holt government, the 10-year Wave Hill walk-off led by Vincent Lingari against pastoral conditions and the whole history of the Vesties. That's fascinating. And, of course, um, the great contribution of Al Grasby, you know, Minister for Immigration under in the Whitlam government, himself a child of Spanish and Italian parents from the Riverina, a great food area, and he gave that really important speech in 1973, which was about a multicultural society for the future. And, Paul, you describe the Asianisation of the Australian palate at this time over these years. Um, and before that came the Asianisation of Australia via the Colombo Plan, end of the White Australia policy, and people travelling. <laughs> and there's that great quote yep. uh, in your book uh, that you that, that really sort of draws together all these amazing big changes on our food ways to normalise Asianisation of our food. Um, and it's from Cherry Ripe's 1993 book, Goodbye Culinary Cringe. Would you like to read that? Because it's just such an amazing quote. Sure. So, so this is Cherry writing in 1993. There are three separate phenomena in the public eating arena that can be identified as part of the Asianisation of the Australian palate. The most obvious of these three phenomena is the explosion of Asian, particularly Thai restaurants in the early 1980s and accelerating wildly in the late 1980s. The second is the inclusion of Asian dishes on menus of European restaurants, for example, on the menus of otherwise Italian-style bistros, such as Thai beef salad at Armstrong's in North Sydney, or the Thai-style vegetarian soup and spring rolls with oyster chili and garlic at Darling Mills in Sydney's Glebe. Then the third and most unusual of these three phenomenon, the extent to which Asian flavors, Asian techniques, and Asian ingredients have been incorporated into individual dishes in Western or European restaurants, brasseries, and bistros, not just on the same plate, but in the same dish. The fusing of Asian and Western flavors is more widespread in Australia than in any other Western country. Yeah, it, it, it catches the it catches what the phases that it kind of went through as well as the basics. Yeah, and just the massive shift. And, and really all these wonderful changes and contributions I mean that modern Australian food today is is kind of designated as an understanding and there's been all sorts of discussions about the components of it and the definitions of it but really that it, that it's one it, it's such a sophisticated and uh, and fused uh, cuisine yes incorporating so many influences yep. and much more comfortable with its place and and um, Tony and Gay Bilson speak about that don't they yes indeed yeah look again though Tony Bilson and Gay Bilson of the world started to say we can produce a Australian cuisine that thinks about Australian foods, um, Australian approaches. So when they start looking at French cuisine, they go towards a new nouvelle cuisine with lighter sauces, you know, things more more used to what an Australian climate's like. Interestingly enough, back in, what was it, 1894, or oh, Edward Abbott, who writes the first Australian cookbook, rails against the meat-heavy and European-heavy diet and says, we ought to have a Mediterranean diet. Well, gee whiz, it only took 100 years for people to go, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, let's do lighter food. Let's do much fresher food. And let's start looking at what Australian ingredients are. And that's when, you know, towards the, the middle 80s, late 80s, you start to get uh, Raymond Kirsch and Jean-Paul Brodeteau beginning the introduction of bush flavors, roots, berries, and leaves into mainstream, if you like, Australian meat dishes, yeah? And again, it's kind of rethinking our place. Um, and at that stage, we were rethinking our place in Asia. Keating and the others saying, we are in Asia. We need to look north. 
not over the seas, thousands of miles away. Mm-hmm. And in the 60s and 70s, sorry, it's just that time of sort of transformations, there was a really interesting quote that I just loved because I thought it was a bit kind of outdated now <laughs> from Margaret Jones in the Sydney Morning Herald in 1970 saying, the dining out boom is probably the biggest thing which has happened in Australia since uranium shares. <laughs> <laughs> but she's, um, you know, who knows, we might be heading back there, uh, subject to how Skymo goes. Yes. <laughs> but she's talking about the proliferation of restaurants, but she's sort of, I think she's also talking about that incredible growth in fast food, which all happened within just a few years when we got McDonald's and Burger King and uh, AFC, literally just within a few, well, I think it was 69 to 72 they all arrived. Yeah, a three-year period and suddenly they're there, a three-year period and they're there. Yeah, 68 to 72, saw the first KFC, Pizza Hut, McDonald's and Hungry Jack's and oh my goodness, what an impact they've had on our food. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> but then moving on to chapter five, well, the second last chapter, Foodie Nation, which I think, you know, of our generation we can all relate to, we're kind of living it, aren't we? Um, and it's all about our foodie and restaurant obsession and there's so many great things going on there. And you've, you've alluded to a lot of it already, you know, the, the, the cult of male celebrity chefs and all the rest. But I just found it really interesting the way you spoke about the incredible growth and rise of what you refer to as guided dining. Do you just want to talk about that a little bit? The 80s when the first... Uh, Sydney Morning Herald's oh. Good Food, first Good Food Guide came out in 1984. Look, you had to have restaurant reviews or dining reviews in newspapers, yeah, but, uh, and you did have um, people kind of often writing under pseudonyms, but then, yeah, in 1984, you get the Herald making this a feature part of what they do. They're actually going to put out a guide, not just in the papers, that, that, but there's enough of a market of people wanting to know where are these trends. Yeah, and, and who's, who's doing what now? Who's doing what now? And it starts to become the competition then, as we do, as we know now, about who's getting the hats. And, oh, I've just lost my, my hat. What happened there? You know, the early um, editors, the Leo Schofields, the um, Helen Greenwoods and so on, do try to set up a system where they are very much informed diners, but also informing other diners, you know. That was still towards the high end of the dining, though. So you then get things like Cheap Eats come out, which says, yeah, but what about us saying, where else can we eat, you know? Let's eat Let's eat cheaply. Yeah, and, and as a student, you'd look for the BYOs, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, look for the BYOs. And then what really, I think, showed what was happening was when um, Mabel Mara and Joanna Savile put out the SBS eating guide. They have really broken the rules here. Like, hey, all of that high-end food is still barely touching what multicultural food's about. Let's look at and get from within SBS and other foodie friends we know where they eat. And it goes from there, you know, it just becomes like an amazing series. Yeah, absolutely. And it really just opens people's eyes to thinking we can not only just eat cheaply, which is what most of those places were, but we can eat across this huge range of food. And what a gift for, for the migrant population as well. Yeah, a real celebration and promotion of them. Total celebration, total promotion, you know. The white male celebrity chef is alive as well. Um, but, but Ian Parmenter's highly successful Consuming Passions, it started in 1992 and aired until 2002 here and overseas. And it was a beautiful series, wasn't it? It was, it was. And, you know, he won awards overseas. Like, And I don't think, again, lots of us who saw Ian Parmenter and obviously lots of people did really appreciated it. But he was a bit like under the bushel. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't a big name in the sense of the Neil Perry's, you know, uh, getting out there and doing their stuff and splashed across everywhere and having a, a restaurant business. He was just really good again in the kind of Margaret Fulton way of really communicating simply in short bursts stuff that people could actually do at home and didn't have to buy expensive cookbooks for. Yeah, beautiful. And so there's, you know, with the Australian gastronomy symposium symposium yes no doubt. you and your colleagues would discuss the nuances of modern australian energy and I, I thought in your book there's a lovely little quote also near the end of your book where you talk about how by 1997 terry Girac and jill duplay the editors of the good food guide had abandoned any attempt to pin the term down <laughs> absolutely absolutely more and more sydney dining has a pacific flavor in its freshness and sunny attitude Modern Australian has come to mean simply Australian. That's right, I, I, and I think that was a that was a sensible turning point to stop calling restaurants models. Which kind of takes us back in a nice way to to a quote from Michael Simons, whose work you obviously admire so much, and who whose 
yep. work your book builds upon and contributes to, you know, other layers. And he his book came out in 1982, One Continuous Picnic. And then in a few years after the Australia, you say Australian gastronomy began and you had the first symposium. And in his book, Continuous Picnic, Michael says that our land missed that fertile period of settled agriculture and cooking. There has never been the agrarian interplay between society and soil that created the great traditional cuisines as we know them. This is the uncultivated continent. Our history is without peasants. And I pose that to you, Paul. We've come a long way since then, have we? Look, uh, and uh, Michael and I will disagree on this. <laughs> I don't think any of us would have liked to have had a peasant economy, thanks very much, uh, because that was fraught. <laughs> I know, and that was fraught with all kinds of problems. And I and I think again, part of what drove Australian Australian food industry and so on in the wrong way, as I as I've suggested, is the notion of trying to have some kind of agrarian culture here. The land could not support it. You would have had to do way too much to try and recreate that. And it was really out of step to do it. You know, he's right. I mean, we'd gone well past that. We were suddenly, uh, you know, within a hundred years of landing in Australia, the white Australian population is heavily industrialised. You know, you, you you skip that. Another really interesting, just, to, just as you say that, another really interesting perspective that re- reinforces what you're saying. It, yes, of course, we have some river valleys and fertile areas, but by and large, the soil is, you know, the, the really productive areas are, are finite. And Mary Graham, who's a, a, a wonderful Indigenous philosopher and scholar. I, I, I love her. I've heard, I've heard her speaking about this. And, and she says, well, in a very modest way, she wasn't buying into the whole debate about Pascoe and current discussions. She was saying, well, of course, you know, we don't have any deltas. And it was just such a lovely way of nailing. <laughs> That's where you're Aryan, uh, highly intensive traditions often come from. And, and I, just, I just thought she was so deft. Yeah. And they flood inland. They flood inland. You know, what a peculiar country we are, backwards everywhere. Paul, your book concludes with millennium reckonings and challenges. And uh, for reasons of time and other, I'm going to refer readers to get to and read the book to learn more about that. But just a quick, uh, uh, you know, towards a final question, Paul, with COVID and other more recent developments, uh, and any further reflections or comments or addendums to your wonderful book that you would perhaps like to make or suggest? I think COVID has thrown the whole question of that whole food way into, question, into um, discussion. And it's particularly about the supply chain. I was going to say it's about that, really. It's about us failing to recognize how monolithically the, the big the big egg trolls this and that the smallest thing that comes along as a curveball to industry really sends us into a panic about how we sustain ourselves. There is food surplus. It's just that we can't get the surplus to the right place. If we redesign food chains from now with the knowledge that there may be another two-year disruption somewhere down the track. We never really grasp these lessons, whereas clearly Aboriginal people over 65,000 years did go, oh, yeah, so that's what happens. Well, maybe we've got to think about that. But we don't because we are captive to that whole technologized egg food way. And, you know, let me make a plug for my dear mate, Alana Mann, uh, academic's book, um, you know, Food in a Change of Climate. She really nails the problems. Well, when we're so caught up in, what does she call it, the plantationization of the <laughs> but But also COVID, and you do allude to this in your book in various ways and places, of course, that there is a quite a strong and growing local and regional and sophisticated food systems thinking and body of practice Going all over the place, and COVID's really given that a, a kick along. Yeah, and what we really do need to do, as I said, is think about policymakers need to think about what, how do we embed those, what support those processes need. Any other further comments? Try not to get too depressed, readers, by the last chapter. <laughs> no, I think it's, I think it's, it's definitely done. It's, thank you, thank you. So on that, you finish the book on an up note. Yes, I do. <laughs> regard to regenerative farming and holistic management and refer to Gabrielle Chan in conversation with Bruce Pascoe in 2018 on the possibilities for native grains across the landscape, grains that will grow in most places in drought conditions without fertilisers and too much tampering, so forth and more. 
To me, it's very true to the land. Yes. Paul, thank you for your wonderful book and for speaking with me about it. It's such a pleasure. Thank you very much, Anthea. I've been speaking with Paul Van Wright, who is the author of True to the Land, A History of Food in Australia. It's recently released and available from Booktopia, and I strongly recommend you get your hands on it. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.